We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You are listening to That's What I Call Science. This week we are talking about engineering and specifically we are talking about biomedical engineering, which is something really close to my heart as a biomedical scientist as my undergraduate degree. So I'm really interested to have this little bit of a change intact in how the engineering content we've been covering with our expert guest um, and co-host Dr. Sarah Lydon. So Sarah, do you want to tell a little bit more about what we're going to be talking about today and introduce our guests? Uh, so today we have two guests from the School of Engineering at the University of Tasmania. We've got Dr. Tim Gale, who's a senior lecturer, and Andrew Marshall, who's a PhD candidate in the school. And they're both working in the area of biomedical engineering. So we thought this was a great chance to learn a bit more about what biomedical engineering is and about some of the interesting projects they're working on. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really exciting change in direction. We've covered a lot of energy-based um, engineering content. So I'm really excited to hear what we are covering today. Yeah, engineering is so broad. There are so many different potential fields. So it's yeah, really nice to be talking about a different field today. Yeah. Um, so Tim and Andrew, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks, Sarah. And in these COVID times, you know, we are still practicing social distancing. So at the time of recording this episode, so we do have Tim and Andrew on the line joining us. Thanks very much for being our virtual guests. Uh, soon, you know, maybe that we'll be at the point in Tasmania where we can do in person, but it's great that we've got technology to accommodate it um, as now. So Sarah, do you want to kick us off with what we're going to ask our guests? Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what biomedical engineering actually involves? Biomedical engineering, like all engineering fields, as it's uh, uh, is was specific and it's it's quite broad as well, and there's a number of things that it involves. So, biomedical engineering is often split into a number of things. One's uh, clinical engineering, and it it's uh, not to do with hospitals and doctors and um, indirectly with patients. There, uh, there's also things like rehabilitation engineering, which biomedical engineers get into. That's helping people maybe with disables, with prosthetic limbs, etc. Um, there's also biomedical uh, engineering in research, and also in uh, things like startup companies, in, um, innovation in the medical area, and there's also uh, um, government organisations that biomedical uh, engineers work for, so departments of health. And there can be teams of biomedical engineers that, that go out and, and uh, and do things, particularly in hospitals. Um, there's a whole lot of uh, different things that biomedical engineers do. Uh, Tim, so could you tell us a little bit more about how biomedical engineering is different to other disciplines of engineering? I think that the main thing is that biomedical engineering is a bit more directly focused with people. Uh, it's uh, Most engineering has the same sort of thing, right? You've got a You've got a complicated problem and you use technology and knowledge and mathematics and, and expertise to solve it. Uh, but I think biomedical engineering 
the crux of it is that you're in quite close contact with with people and you're more directly helping people. So whereas all engineering disciplines help people, uh, some are a bit more remote. You don't quite interact with the people you're helping with so much. But biomedical engineering often is much more closely in contact with them. In the end, what you're actually doing is quite similar to in other fields, actually. it's You, know, you might be working out how to control something or design some structural thing that's helping someone, but it's all to do with people. So I guess this kind of relates a little bit to one of the earlier shows we did where we talked about um, human-centred design and um, in the context of humanitarian engineering. So would you sort of say there's a, a, a quite a high kind of human-centredness to the field? Yes. I, I think that's what attracts people into biomedical engineering is the initial draw card that gets them in. And interestingly, there's quite a lot of people that – um, as tossing up between doing medicine and doing engineering. And so you know, some of those are the ones that, that decide to, to that, you know, they really like the technical side of things and they really like um, math, they really like to create things. And, and so they may fall into the biomedical engineering side. And then there's, there's other people that just just really maybe couldn't stand being a doctor, <laughs> but they want to help people. But they are also technically minded, and so they, they can often fall into biomedical engineering as well. So it's really is human-centred, definitely. So, Andrew, I wonder, as a PhD student, have you had much experience of, you know, talking directly with patients or with doctors, industry, medical providers? Because that's something that maybe a lot of um, PhD candidates as a whole, but engineering PhD candidates may not have an experience in or is your background in engineering and then you decided to specialize in biomedical engineering? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, I wouldn't necessarily say that all biomedical engineering PhD candidates have a lot of interaction with um, with patients directly, but I, I certainly have. Um, and um, there's definitely much more um, capability to have direct interaction with, you know, the users of the technology in, in the biomedical space than, than anywhere else, I think. Um, yeah, through, through my PhD, I spend you know at least a day a week, usually in the um, in the hospital or a hospital, working with um, equipment that we're we're using for clinical studies, but directly talking to the, the clinical staff as well as the, the patients. So in just a moment, we'll be talking a little bit more about biomedical engineering and the work of our expert guests, um, Andrew Marshall and Dr. Tim Gale. So stay tuned for more in a moment. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about biomedical engineering. My name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined with our engineering expert co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, along with our expert guests, Dr. Tim Gale and PhD candidate Andrew Marshall from the School of Engineering at the University of Tasmania. So, Sarah, we've heard a little bit about what biomedical engineering is and um, how closely it sits with its users, so patients, doctors, and the medical industry as a whole. So what um, next will we be talking about in this segment? Uh, so now we're going to talk a little bit more about one of the interesting projects that Andrew and Tim have been working on, um, which is in neonatal oxygen control. So, uh, Tim, would you be able to tell us a little bit more about what's been involved in your work with neonatal oxygen control? Yes. Uh, 
this has been quite a focus of my life over more than a decade now. Uh, it all, it's all about um, babies, particularly the premature babies, the babies born early, um, who are um, often now way early when they uh, when they're born, and they um, it's about helping them survive and to prosper um, even before the time that they're due to be birthed when, when they're, um, they're very uh, fragile and then they've got support and particularly support with provision of oxygen, additional oxygen to them. And uh, this project is all about uh, uh, really making some um, advances and some things that are going to help um, in the provision of the oxygen in a really nice controlled way. The babies are very fragile. They are uh, not really meant to be breeding yet, these premature babies. And they can be, be born um, weeks and weeks, uh, months early, and they can they can be tiny. They can have a 700-gram baby there. So, Tim, this is usually, I think it's normally in the gestational period or the pregnancy period. It's usually after 30 weeks that the lungs are formed or at least that you could give a pregnant woman that you think might be at risk of premature birth that you can administer a steroid injection that would facilitate growth of the lungs. So usually a baby born before 30 weeks wouldn't have fully developed lungs. So I'm imagining that when you say a very premature baby, you're thinking before 30 weeks where the lungs may not even be fully developed. Um, yes, yeah, it, it... Uh, so I'm not the medical the, medic, the medical side. Of Dr. Professor Peter Dargaville is our um, great expert, expert here. Um, but, you know, you can be 24 weeks old. Yeah, wow, but so it's, really it's, premature. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but interestingly, even after the 30-week gestation, you know, there's a lot of development that happens, and it, it can be neural as well. It can be the, the control systems of the baby to control their breathing. And it's also things like the you know, surfactant in the lungs that, you know, it comes later, and that helps to keep the lungs open. So there's there's lots of uh, there's also development there to be done, um, and there's also systems inside in the babies that help protect them when they start breathing from the oxygen that they breathe. And in the premature babies, that's not developed well yet. And so, uh, if you have high levels of oxygen in the premature babies, it actually acts really aggressively to attack things in their body. Um, so, for example, they, if you have too much oxygen, they'll go blind. Um, but, of course, they need enough oxygen uh, for their mental development. And there's a real fine line between uh, enough oxygen uh, and too much. And, and that's the area that uh, we've been working on for over a decade now, is how can we provide enough oxygen but not too much um, and uh, and specifically how can we automate that and does automating it produce a better result than uh, than what's been done in the past. So Tim could you please tell us a little bit about how the technology that you've developed works in controlling oxygen delivery to infants that may have underdeveloped lungs or that require oxygen delivery for whatever reason? Well the, the the standard uh, care for these babies is that they they're given um, additional oxygen through a mask, and the amount of oxygen is controlled manually by the the medical staff, particularly the nurses. And to tell you the truth, we've got uh, some of the best nursing care here. 
so the, I'm talking about worldwide. We have we have absolutely brilliant nurses, brilliant care. We have brilliant doctors as well looking after them, and they do really well with this. But um, even the most superhuman efforts have a limitation of how well they can control oxygen levels in the baby's blood. And what we've done is um, automate that adjustment by having a use, or using the sensing of the blood oxygen levels through an oximeter probe on the uh, attached to the baby, which they currently use. But but then um, being very clever in taking that level and then providing the adjustments to the oxygen. Um, and that's done by um, having a motor control of the, the adjuster on the on the oxygen dial, which is dialing up more or less oxygen. And the the nursing staff normally do that with some um, you know by a lot of expertise in their head. Unfortunately, they can't be there 100% of the time. Uh, and so what we've done is is you know, have basically put a computer in that's monitoring everything you know, second by second, and um, and then makes the appropriate adjustments. But we've had to uh, make it so that the, the, the computer becomes smart and uh, we can't reproduce the quality of the nursing staff and what they do, but we've done it in a different way, which is an engineering way um, in how to control things and, um, and, and put that in. And that's a mathematical algorithm that we've developed. And and uh, that's the crux of what we've done is we have uh, uh, we have intelligence built into a mathematical algorithm which works out how to adjust the oxygen and, um, and makes that oxygen control happen. That sounds really fascinating. So a couple of things there just to um, to unpack is that so usually nurses or you know sometimes if you've taken part in research or maybe if you've been at the hospital, you might have seen that people will place like a little probe on your finger and it will come out with a score that's usually in the 90s and that is essentially the amount of oxygen that's in your blood at that time, the saturation of oxygen in your blood. And usually anything above 96 is normal for an adult. I don't know what the normal is for um, an infant, but... You know, research has shown that even just providing pulse oximeters, which is the things that measure from your finger, um, to certain settings uh, improve the delivery of oxygen or at least the allocation of oxygen in low resource settings. So Dr. Hamish Grain is a Tasmanian who won the CSL Flory Award last year for using this approach in um, developing countries. So it sounds like this is a similar thing, but you and the research team more broadly have identified that a, a key challenge here with infants is that you know, this requires ongoing monitoring from the nursing staff and infants, like you were saying before, Tim, have this really crucial development period where there's actually normal variation in how much oxygen they're taking in, their ability to to do um, to use that and uptake it. So you've developed a really clever algorithm that can track those second by second and then have an algorithm that d determines how much oxygen needs to be delivered and an almost rapid response from the technology to, to adjust that accordingly, which is really um, ingenuitive technology, but it almost sounds intuitive when you, you hear it explained like that from, from you, your team that it's like oh yeah well of course why wouldn't we do this but it's actually hugely important that it's probably also improving resources for the nurses can then also you know look at how that is performing but then adjust their care and focus their care elsewhere rather than monitoring vital signs and adjusting oxygen levels so that's a really interesting thing that you just said uh fucking buddy and because <laughs> yeah you're, you're right that the algorithm is really simple um you know it it takes um what their blood oxygen level is now and compares it to what it should be. And uh, 
does a response based on that. There's also, uh, because it's, it, it knows what's happened in the past and it knows how long the baby has been in that state. And that can have a dramatic effect on the baby. And so it knows maybe to respond more quickly if, it's, if it hasn't been changing um, to boost it up. And there's a whole number of different things that we do. Andrew's an expert in all this, of course, um, and he might explain a bit more. But it, there's a whole lot of things that it does, um, which, which is sort of uh, because it's there monitoring the whole time. Um, and there's also some smart things we've managed to build in where it adapts to a particular baby state, for example. Um, so it's, it, it's very, very simple. Um, interestingly, you know, people have struggled in the past to do that around the world. And you know, and a very fascinating thing I'm fascinated in is how we've managed to do it here, and it's it's really uh, a combination of fantastic uh, medical staff, the doctors, very receptive nursing staff in our hospital. We've got some of the best nursing staff. I want to, you know, I, I really want to give them a big heads up here because there's other hospitals where the engineers and doctors want to do this and the nursing staff might not be receptive. We've got the most brilliant nursing staff here who have um, embraced this, uh, um, the research that we've done and the technology and have participated fantastically well. Um, and I think that this is why we've managed to do it. It's, the, it's that combination of, of all those factors that have, that have come together. Andrew, could you tell us a little bit about how your PhD project fits into this? Yeah, so um, my PhD project is specifically around trying to improve an existing algorithm that we, that we uh, that, that the team has worked on over the last 10 years. So I've been working on this since uh, 2017, I think, when I started in my honours project. Um, yeah, so we, we had an existing control that we, that we developed that we, we'd already run a clinical trial on. And showing uh, you know, significant improvements over over the standard care, um, but there are still a number of areas of improvement, particularly around trying to um, tailor that algorithm to um, different infants in different stages of their development. Um, obviously, as their lungs are developing, they require less support, and the algorithm needs to be able to change to, to handle that. So my PhD is around trying to understand. And limitations of the current algorithm and how we can modify it to perform as well as it possibly can in all infants. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay tuned to hear about what's next for this life-saving technology that started out right here in Tasmania. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, and we're talking about biomedical engineering. My name is Neve Chapman, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, along with our expert guests, Dr. Tim Gale and Andrew Marshall from the School of Engineering at the University of Tasmania. So we've heard about this fascinating technology that's being used to improve oxygen delivery for infants, and particularly preterm infants. And we heard about how Andrew's PhD work is progressing this even further, built on, you know, 10 years of work. So, Sarah, what are we looking at next? So now we're going to get a bit of an idea of some future directions for this technology, um, both from Andrew's perspective and Tim's perspective. So, um, Andrew, would you like to start this one off for us? What do you sort of see as some future directions for this technology? Yeah, sure. So I guess we should probably talk about the fact that the, the algorithm is currently um, 
actually commercially available. So it's been commercialized by a company in the UK called SLE. Um, they, they refer to the algorithm as Oxygenie. So they're working with um, a version of the algorithm that's from when I started my PhD. Um, and so the next next stages for, for the work that I'm doing is getting version 2.0 of that algorithm out and getting it into the commercial devices. And the key the key elements of that are having the algorithm respond to changes in what's going on with the infants, in particular detecting when the baby's stopped breathing. They do very frequently for, for short periods of time um, and predicting what's going to happen downstream from that in the 10 or 20 seconds downstream of when the infant stops breathing and giving them a boost of oxygen to try and um, mitigate any um, desaturation, as we call it, after the, after the pause in breathing. That's, that's one of the main things that I've been working on in my PhD. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, Tim, from your perspective, what are kind of the, the future directions for this technology? Well, it's quite exciting, I think. Now, as Andrew's mentioned, this technology has been commercialised uh, by SLE in their top-end ventilator, which is uh, sold around the world. And our algorithm, um, Oxygeny, is uh, in that. It's in many, many neonatal units around the world. In the last two years, it's spread to over 30 countries where it's been used. Uh, so part of the future is the continued take-up and spread of this. It's looking like this is the best system worldwide in controlling premature babies' oxygen levels. It seems to be on the way to superseding any other system that's there. So that's extremely exciting. One thing is, is that this technology that they have in their ventilators are, uh, are not the cheapest. They are they're a really good price for a ventilator, but ventilators are expensive. Uh, and so we're, we're working with them on an exciting development about making this technology more available um, to people who, who don't maybe don't need or you know hospitals um, medical medical faces that don't need um, a full ventilator uh, and they've got something in the pipeline there which is really exciting that may well come out later this year or early next year so I have one question on yeah. that. Um, I think a lot of people would be aware this year in particular that ventilators are really expensive. So do you think given the um, heightened awareness, but also maybe um, the heightened manufacturing of ventilators, at least for adults, you know, will that play into the way that your new innovative solution is going to play out? Or is it really not related even tangentially? Um, with this work, we work brilliantly with adults. Um, our technology, but ballots are easy, to tell you the truth. Their bodies are designed to be breathing. There's a whole lot of things that are just stable. The premature babies are unstable. The technology is really, really applicable to, to that, and that's where we're focused. Um, and I, but I think we're sort of, you know, we'd like to ride a wave of um, enthusiasm for, for breathing because it's so important, and, you know, right now, and, um, and ventilators play a part when people are really, really sick. Um, but certainly not everyone needs a ventilator, they just need oxygen, additional oxygen. And that's where our cheaper option is, you know, will, will come into place. And it, it's suitable for, for, for adults as well as children. But, but we, we really want to focus on this vulnerable premature stage. Um, but we've also got a third thing that in the pipeline is uh, 
is uh, low resource settings. What's called low resource? It's, it's uh, the places where there's very, um, not just uh, lack of money, but there's also lack of facilities. Uh, you know, some hospitals in the world don't have reliable oxygen supplies, for example. Um, some some hospitals can't afford um, not just to buy the equipment, but they can't afford the cost um, for the disposable items like masks or tubing that needs to be replaced. And we've really got interest to, uh, to go into that area as well. And we've got a few things starting um, in partnerships with other people to, uh, to try and start to make that happen. But that might be another story <laughs> another time. It sounds like a really um, exciting area to, that will keep you busy for 10 more years at least to come, I'm sure. I wonder, just as a final question, if you could talk about that whole experience of having something as an initial idea right through to commercialization um, and, you know, maybe talking on the profession, like through the lens of the profession as a whole. So what's been your experience? How rewarding has that been? And what would be your advice to other people considering biomedical engineering? This is this is uh, it's, it's been a great a great journey uh, from the initial call from Professor Dargaville uh, looking for an engineer to partner with him in his medical um, pursuits in helping the babies um, through to, uh, to de- the developments that we've had. I, rem- I do remember being at a conference uh, now after after um, we just got everything working properly, and there was some ex- very very distinguished biomedical engineers in Australia. Um, who were there, and they and they heard about what we were doing, and they said, turned to me and said, "Look, we tried this 20 or 30 years ago, and we couldn't do it, and you've you've actually managed to do it. Um, so it's incredibly rewarding um, that you know we actually managed to do what a lot of people, even worldwide, have not been able to do. It's um, and it's not been being ultra clever or anything. It's about the partnerships that we've had, and we've we've been a bit fortunate and lucky, but um, but it's it's incredibly um, nice. I mean, sometimes things fall into place in life, and it doesn't happen very often. And as long as it does, through no thing that you really did yourself, things have fallen into place, and you go, "Wow, that's a once in a lifetime thing that's happened." I think that's a really good point about how Tasmania operates in a really beautiful way. Like we've got this really nice island culture that lends itself so beautifully to partnerships and collaboration. And unfortunately, that's all we've got time for today. So you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. My name is Neve Chapman. I've been joined by my co-host, Dr. Sarah Lydon, who leads our engineering content. We've been talking about biomedical engineering with experts from um, Tasmania in Hobart, Dr. Tim Gale and PhD candidate Andrew Marshall. If you've enjoyed today's um, content, please let us know on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Like and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service. And if you could give us a review, that would really help us reach an even broader audience. As always, thank you for listening and goodbye. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. Gemmaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.